It's go time. You are listening live to Quick Kicks, a presentation of Third Down Gamble. Welcome, everyone. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. And later, we'll be joined by our special guest, Rob Vanstone, to discuss more about CFL happenings. First, Heath, the uh, brand new CFL 2022 schedule has been released. And of course, as Trevor Hardy had mentioned on Three Down Nations podcast a year ago, focus is going to be on divisional play, intra-divisional play as opposed to inter. And that's exactly what's happening. Ten games within the East, with each East teams playing each other, and then they play the rest against the West. The West, same thing, 10 games within the West, and they finish the season with eight games against the East. A couple things that really jumped out. One glaring omission in the 2021 schedule was there were no matchups between the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Ottawa Red Blacks. The league has decided to rectify that early. They play back-to-back, home and home, and home to start the season off which also means that the league has gone away from the Grey Cup matchup rematch on week number one. I'm in favor of that completely. I never cared for it. I don't think that it did much for anything. These teams are going to play each other anyway. Let them play whenever they happen to meet. Opening night, not the best night. Celebrate your championship Winnipeg with a different opponent. I think that would be cool. I tend to disagree with you on this one. I think the Grey Cup rematch on opening day is a great way to kick off the season. It gives the league some momentum and something to talk about. And it's whether it's a revenge victory for the team that lost the Grey Cup or a chance for the winning team to celebrate at home with another victory. We've seen kind of about a 500 record in the rematch games. So both of those aspects have come into play at one time or another and I think it's a good way to kick off the season I'm not going to lose any sleep over it not happening this year however um, I think it's it's great to get that missing component from 2021 into play right away here um, interesting matchups and you look through the schedule Saskatchewan plays a very east heavy schedule to start the season and then and then very heavy against the west at the end of the season so there's a lot of, of interesting components to it. And one other thing that jumped off the page at me, and I'm sure you noticed this one as well, Don, that the Calgary San Peters and Saskatchewan Rough Riders do not play each other until the final two weeks of the season. So that could be a very, very key matchup for teams trying to make the playoffs. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more on that point. We may disagree on whether the Grey Cup champs and the losers need to meet on week one, but we can agree on this. The other thing, the quirk of being a nine-team league, of course, you've got four teams in the East, five in the West, with East teams having eight games available to them to play the West. You can't necessarily play everybody an equivalent amount of time, so there creates a little bit of a disparity in the West. That means that Calgary and Edmonton this time for 2022, we'll play four times. That, I think, is great. Uh, Montreal and Toronto, uh, again, are going to be three games apiece. Montreal-Ottawa will be four games. Hamilton-Toronto will be four games in the East. That is, I think, great. I think the extra game against a rival is great. Calgary and Edmonton, of course, we know how intense it is there. Hamilton-Toronto, same thing. Montreal-Ottawa, same thing. Rivalry games, 
are what bring fans out and get eyeballs glued to the set. It certainly does. And we're fortunate we also get Winnipeg, Saskatchewan three times this year. Sometimes in the past, they've only played twice. So great to get that kind of rubber match between those two teams as well. Um, Interesting to note that they won't play each other prior to Labor Day. Winnipeg will have played every other team in the league before those home and home games for Labor Day and, and the Banjo Bowl. So there's some real interesting games and scheduling that comes into play as far as teams making playoff pushes. Like I said, that Calgary Saskatchewan could really be for all the marbles at the end of the season. Those two games could be playing for who makes it into the playoffs or who wins the West. It's going to be really exciting to see. The other thing that we could talk about too is that British Columbia never made a trip to Edmonton last year. They will in 2022. I mean, I don't know what kind of crowbar you need to fit everything into a 14-game schedule, but Trevor Hardy and the people that were responsible, I couldn't imagine doing that job nor doing it better than what they did. Created some intense games. The way it worked out, it was fantastic because in some senses, people thought, well, BC's got or a preponderance of their games against the West at home. They would just roll and instead home didn't work out well for the Lions. That's very true. And we look at a couple of other things. The traditional Labor Day matchups are all on the schedule as we're used to seeing. However, Hamilton-Toronto play the week before Labor Day head-to-head and do not have the following weekend matchup. Um, Toronto goes to Ottawa the week after Labor Day. So a little bit of a change up from what we're used to seeing in those matchups, but they do get the back-to-back. It just starts a week earlier. Stadium availability is always something that you have to query. Do you have it for this date? What else could be going on in the city at that time? We're all hoping that Omicron is in the rearview mirror at that point when the season does get going in earnest. Uh, the Riders and the Bombers do play that extra time, though, in the first preseason game for each team. They're meeting in May. The schedule, I think, is, as you said, really sort of out of division heavy at the start for a couple teams and then really in division heavy as you go down the stretch. That's what really drives the energy because as you go down and look at who your opponent is and what that could mean for first, second, third, that could be huge. And having Calgary, Saskatchewan back-to-back. Now the CFL tends to back-to-back because of that extra intensity factor. Yeah, and you factor travel in as well. It's a league that needs to control costs where they can. You've got that extra little bit of time when the teams are playing back-to-back, especially if they're in the same division. And just looking at the last two weeks of the season... Now, we were hoping for some drama at the end of 2021. Things didn't quite fall to create drama throughout that last week of the season. But look at the last two weeks of 2022. You've got Ottawa and Hamilton, BC and Edmonton, Toronto and Montreal, Calgary and Saskatchewan. The following week, BC and Winnipeg, Montreal and Toronto, Hamilton and Ottawa, Saskatchewan and Calgary. So all within the divisions and depending on where things fall, all of those could be very meaningful games for teams trying to secure those playoff spots. Exactly. When those games come up, that's what you want. You want them to mean something. And if it's a divisional opponent that's maybe trying to take something from you, then it adds to the drama. As much as anything, drama is what drives football. I'm excited to see an 18-game schedule. Let's get through it. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. 
With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. Joining us now is our special guest, Rob Vanstone of the Regina Leader Post. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Don. Thanks, Heath. It's great to be with you again. We have major, major news with Chris Jones relanding in Edmonton. Shocker, stunner, great, wow. What's your superlative? Nothing that ever happens in the wide world of Chris Jones will ever surprise me. I mean, he's been itinerant throughout his football career, not necessarily throughout, he had some reasonably long tenures in a few places. But in, in recent years, in the past calendar year, in fact, I mean, it's been, or just slightly more than that, we're talking Cleveland Browns, we're talking South Pittsburgh High School, we're talking Toronto Argonauts, and now we're talking Edmonton Elks. Uh, so I think the the ink on the business card is likely written in pencil. I'm, I'm of two minds of this. I mean, it's easy to... to kind of make fun of the whole Chris Jones story and the and how nomadic he has been. But he was in Saskatchewan for three years and did a really good job of establishing a foundation here. Ken Austin was here for one year as a head coach, and even all these years later, lauding Ken, Ken Austin for what he did in one year and then left and did exactly what Chris Jones has done in, in many cases. So I'm not sure it's fair for me to, to admire Ken Austin as much as I do. And then simultaneously criticized Chris Jones for bouncing around. Chris Jones's tenure as a Rough Rider head coach was thrice that of Ken Austin. The difference being Kent won a great cup here. The job was pretty much done. Uh, whereas I think Chris built a team that's sort of on the precipice of a great cup, great cup birth, but still hasn't gotten there. I mean, it's, it's really interesting when you look at Edmonton. I mean, it's uh, Chris Jones is a dynasty there compared to the tenure of Scott Milanovic. And I suspect that this time around, Chris Jones is going to have a longer tenure. He signed a four-year contract. I think he understands as much as anybody that, that he's got to put down roots somewhere now. And uh, because there is that stigma, for lack of a better word, attached to him now. I don't begrudge him leaving Saskatchewan. I mean, you've got the National Football League opportunity comes comes along. I think you have to you have to jump at that. Uh the, the situation with the high school, I think, left a sour taste in more people's mouths than, than did his departure from Saskatchewan. And that was a mid, you know, that was a middle of the season thing, too. And you're talking about high school kids. Pro sports, it's a pretty unforgiving business on both sides. And when you have a chance to, to take the money or, or advance yourself, I think you have to do it. And Chris Jones has taken advantage of those opportunities. I'm not sure uh, a, lot of, a, a lot of people in those situations wouldn't do what Chris Jones has done. One interesting thing I read about the football, the the high school football situation is that Chris Jones couldn't even make it through an eight-game season at his alma mater. One interesting fact about Chris Jones and his CFL career is he has never been fired from a position. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, Dave Naylor, I think, posted something to that effect the other day. And uh, that makes him a novelty in the in the world of professional sports, certainly in the world of coaching. Once the situation at Edmonton runs his course, I'm sure it'll be on his terms as well. He generally tends to to, to land on his feet more than than leave in, in a situation that isn't the, isn't that uh, glorious. So I think I think he's I think he's going to do a really good job at Edmonton. I think he's what they need, at least to restore the uh, credibility of the football team on the field. I think that's a virtual given that Chris Jones is going to do a do a, a good job there. Um, you know, the extent to which he, you know, attaches himself to the community remains to be seen. When he when he was in Saskatchewan, 
he didn't really embrace the community. He lived, he lived in the United States for half the year. Um, there's going to have to be a greater commitment, I think, to the community for Chris Jones to, to silence some of the skeptics. But as far as the uh, on-field operation, I think he'll do a, do a tremendous job. And he, even in Saskatchewan, when I saw Chris Jones interact with fans, members of public, uh, he was absolutely great with them. He left people with a smile on their face every time I saw him approach, approach by a fan who wanted to chat, who wanted an autograph, who wanted whatever, wanted a selfie. I, I, I think he got a bit of a bad rap in a way. I, he's, he's kind of a down-home guy that's pretty engaging. And uh, I think if, if, uh, if, he, if he really immerses himself in that community, I think he can go a long way to repairing some of the damage that's been done in Edmonton in recent years. He's certainly saying all the right things right now, which you normally do when you interview and start a new job. He's already talking about legacy building and he's mentioned John Huffnagel and he's mentioned Wally Buono and guys that have established a dynasty or a, a real sense of building a franchise and staying with it to the long term. So a four-year deal is... I think a great starting point for him. And it's really interesting to see what develops and where he goes with it. Yeah. I, I'm fascinated with it. And I'm also fascinated to see what his coaching staff is going to look like in Edmonton. You know, there's so many people who not only coaches, but players who just seem to go wherever Chris Jones goes. You know, you look at, look at Willie Jefferson, for example, and had Chris Jones stayed in Saskatchewan, Willie Jefferson, I think would have stayed in Saskatchewan. Chris Jones has got that magnetism about him and that loyalty that, that uh, people feel to him. Uh, wouldn't be at all surprising to see Stephen McAdoo end up back in Edmonton probably as the offensive coordinator. And won't that be an interesting story to do next time uh, the Elks are in Saskatchewan? If there's ever a season for a new general manager to take the helm and try to build himself a team with the free agents available this year, it's certainly the time to do yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like redrafting a fantasy team every year. <laughs> you know, there's, just, there's so few holdovers. With my fantasy team, I'm glad I can redraft an entirely new team next year so that it can stink as well. But any multi-year contract, the advantage is so heavily weighted toward the team and not toward the player. Is it now incumbent upon the CFLPA to look at some sort of guarantees? The way they do it in the NFL with certain players where certain certain amount of the money in the contract is guaranteed regardless of what happens. And maybe that could mitigate the lopsidedness by quite a bit so that a player who signs a three-year deal isn't going to be cut because of, well, if they do, there's going to be a penalty paid by the team because they're going to have to pay them out whatever portion you decide that that guarantee is going to be. Yeah. You know, I wish there was a way that that money could count against the cap if that player is released or structure it so that the signing bonus, instead of say $20,000 upon signing, maybe it's a, it's an ironclad $10,000 each year. And it's not negotiable so that the team is, you see so many situations where a player is released the day or the week before a signing bonus is due. If those signing bonuses are non-negotiable, maybe that's a way to do it. it football is a different industry than basketball or baseball or hockey when it comes to the, the signing bonuses and the, and the, and the, and the, the guaranteed money. And, and I guess it's just it's generally accepted across the football world, be it the NFL or the CFL, that, that uh, you're pretty much, your, your contract is, renewable at the whim of the team every year it's not not that different from a athlete scholarship at a u.s college each year it comes it comes due i'd like to see a way where they can build a bit of job security in in for these players because uh they deserve it especially when you look at what they're making in comparison to to players in the nfl or any major professional sport 
you know, they're taking the hits just as hard as the NFL players, but they don't have the same uh, financial guarantees that the NFLers do. And uh, I just, I, I wish there was a way for the CFL players to, to kind of get what, what they deserve. They're really at a disadvantageous situation by and large. And, and uh, the CFL is a smaller scale league. There's only so much money to go around, but I think the players have a really good argument for um, more than they're getting, at least in terms of job security. We saw a prime example of that this week with Trevor Harris being released by the Montreal Alouettes, and he was due about a $300,000 bonus in the new year. So that's exactly what you were speaking to. And, you know, a, a player of Trevor Harris's caliber and tenure in the league to just be cut to save costs is exactly what, what I think is wrong with the way that things are structured right now. There's myriad examples to that effect. Look at what happened when Chris Jones first got to Saskatchewan. Weston Dressler, John Chick, what they had signed, they had committed themselves to the franchise and they were kaboom, gone. And uh, and those are players that, that really left a lot of DNA on, on, on the playing surface in Saskatchewan. And what did they have to show for it ultimately? So where's the incentive for a player to, you see what happens to Weston Dressler or John Chick, if it can happen to a player like that, it can happen to anybody. But the Alouettes were not going to pay two starting salaries at quarterback. You knew that, at least I felt from the word go, that the moment that Harris showed up in Montreal, he was a rental. And the only way he would keep his job is if he got that team to the Grey Cup. Once they signed Adams, Vernon Adams Jr., to his extension, that was the uh, writing on the wall. Yeah, you know, but you, know, you look back and Trevor Harris in good faith signed that contract. And, uh, and, just by nature of the contractual arrangements in the CFL, it's just, it, it really isn't worth much more than the paper is printed on. In fact, it was printed on paper in this digital world, but in, in a perfect world, there'd be more obligation than there was as opposed to a, a, a press release coming out shortly before Christmas saying Trevor Harris is being released. It's not really a surprise, but it's just, it's a shame when that happens to a, to a, to a player and an established player. It just, it just doesn't, it's not a good look on the league. I don't think overall when players are just so disposable, especially when a lot of the issues, I think that some of the issues that affect the league and it's, it's profile relate to how difficult it is to, to relate, to get attached to a specific player because the contracts are pretty much year to year propositions and your favorite player, you might buy a Jersey with your player's favorite name and number on it. And that player might be playing against your favorite team the, the next year. And that's, there's nothing to really guard against that right now, but it's, it's really tough to build a fan base when you're pretty much renewing your affiliation every year, renewing your uh, fandom towards specific players every year, the way it's structured. I read a tweet earlier this week that said, if you want a Jersey of a player that's going to be with your team for a long time, look to the Canadian offensive lineman. You do see some classic jerseys you know the the banjo bowl or the labor day game you see some wallby jerseys floating around and things like that and so there is some truth to that but it's, it's unfortunate that the star players in the league are with your team maybe two three four years and then on to the next shiny thing well look at how numbers how quickly number seven changed in saskatchewan i mean weston dressler was here for the longest time obviously and that became a very popular jersey and it still is but then number seven became Willie Jefferson, who was a very popular player. And then number seven became Cody Fajardo. So 
that's three very high profile players wearing Joe 747 Adams as old number seven. You, know, you look at Weston Dressler as far as 2015 wearing number seven, and then Willie Jefferson through 2018, and then 2019, Cody Pajarno takes over. So within the space of five calendar years, that number is a very prominent player and a very prominent number has changed, has turned over three different times. Well, all you have to do is rip the name badging off the back and replace it and you're on your way. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess it's easy in one sense, but it's, it's, it's just, it's just unfortunate when I was growing up and I hate to go back and make myself sound old, but one of the things that really helped me get into the CFL was the fact that I just knew who the players were everywhere, every year. And it sure didn't hurt that the two principal players of the rough on the rough riders when I was growing up were Ron Lancaster and George Reed. You just knew they would always be there. Boy, I'd be interested to see if what it would be like now if there was a Ronnie and George. You're not going to get 16 years with the rough riders in one case and 13 years uh, in the other. And I've always tried to think, you know, how devastating would it have been to to see favorite players leave via free agency when I was a kid? I think that would have really, really hurt. By the time it started happening more frequently, I think I was I was age where I, I'm still not over Joey Walters going to the USFL, but I think I've come to grips with it. <laughs> I was I was almost like I was almost 19 when that happened. So, but man, if 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 that had happened when I was seven or eight, that would be gutting. And does does that hurt you trying to develop a young fan base when you when a, when a, when you've got a kid, part of the de- demographic you're trying to attract, and, and suddenly your favorite players playing for somebody else. You just don't really understand why. It happens far too often and way too much. I agree. It has to be gutting for especially a young kid who's really grown attached to a certain player. They have to sort of get past it somehow. Uh, I don't know what you do with your kid if that happens, but then you've got to reattach to somebody else and you hope that that somebody else is as good as who they followed before. Ottawa, back in the 60s, and I heard this if you want to make that team, it was almost impossible. They might have one or two roster changes per season. That's how tight Frank Clare ran his ship in Ottawa. And they went to Grey Cups several times during the 60s. Yeah, I remember coming out of the 76 season going into 77. And I went to training camp every day in 1977. And the vast majority of the newcomers did not make that rider team. It was so packed with veterans. They had a kick returner named Carl Roaches make the team. He ended up playing a few games, ended up with the Houston Oilers returning kick. Emil Nielsen made the team. He was their first-round draft choice out of Simon Fraser. There weren't many others. If there were newcomers, they had been obtained from other teams like Phil Price from the Montreal Alouettes or Barry Ardern from the uh, from the BC Lions or they traded for Bill Baker that, that uh, offseason. So Bill Baker was back. But if any new players came in, so-called new players, they were veterans. But for a, for a rookie to come in and make that 77 rider team, it was really difficult as it was to make the 76 rider team and the 75 or the 75 rider team. Uh, now the rosters are just so interchangeable. It seems you don't even really, really blink, but it was a big deal once upon a time for a young player to come into this rough rider team and come onto this rough rider team and make it or or Edmonton teams of the of the 70s when they were beating the riders the West final every year or the players with the Edmonton dynasty from 78 to 82 and, there's a ton of players who were on the first team that won the Grey Cup. There are a lot of players who were on the 78 team and the 82 team. How would that work now if a team won five in a row? I don't think there'd be more than one or two uh, left over from the first year. Well, Winnipeg is kind of the team that maybe could pull it off. They they kept their 2019 team together pretty well and won it again. No, and they've done a great job. And you look at how they were able to negotiate 
with those players, the kind of salary cut that Adam Bighale took, for example, then he ends up being named the most outstanding defensive player in the league. Zach Claros re-upped in, in, uh, in, in Winnipeg, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, they, they did such a great job of doing that. How long is that sustainable, though? Because at some point, you got to think they want to cash in while they can cash in. I mean, it's, it's an amazing bit of contractual contortions for them to do what they did to retain those players. But when you've got 11 CFL All-Stars, at what point does that many, that many players say, look, I've got to use my marketability while I've got it and get what I can while I can, because these careers are very short. They've got the second most free agents behind only the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And by comparison, the team that's in the best shape now that they've got Vernon Adams and Eugene Lewis off the board are the Montreal Alouettes with 25 free agents. So that's the low number. It's just incredible. There are some really significant players that are available. For instance, both the quarterbacks that played for Hamilton in the Grey Cup are free agents. And won't that be interesting? And now now you're looking at uh, the general manager change in Ottawa and you start thinking, okay, does Dane Evans or Jeremiah Mazzoli end up quarterbacking the Red Blacks next year considering the ties to Hamilton there? If you want to, if you want to get a franchise rebuilt in a hurry, free agency is certainly a vehicle that will allow you to do that with all the players moving around. You're, there's, really, there's really not a long-term plan. Remember, I remember when players or coaches and GMs used to talk about three-year plans or five-year plans. Now it's a three-month plan or a five-month plan. You pretty much got to press refresh on your team every year. And you look, at, look no further than the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and how many of their key players are not under contract for uh, 2022. And that just happens to be a year when the, when the Great Cup's going to be held in Saskatchewan. And it's a different animal for Jeremy O'Day trying to put together a, a team that can contest, have reasonable aspirations of, of playing a home game in the Great Cup compared to Brendan Tamman, because uh, the one-year contracts were in vogue when Brendan Tamman was the GM. And in 2012, he was able to sign Dominic Picard and, uh, and, and Brendan Labatt. They were foundational players for an offensive line that needed rebuilding. And, and they made all sorts of deals in 2013, obviously, to, to fortify the team. But he was able to backload those contracts. And John Chick took less money in 2013 than he was paid in 2014. So did Chris Getzlaff. So you could play with the, with the numbers a bit and, uh, and, and backload those contracts to make everything fit in 2013. But if you're just signing one-year contracts, you can't have the John Chick-style contract. You can't have the Chris Getzlaff-style contract, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's an infinitely tougher challenge for Jeremy O'Day to make the numbers work uh, or than it was for Brendan Tamman in 2013 as a remarkable as a job as he did making all that, all that fit save about $17,000 that they were over the cap. Coming into last year, the big concerns were no Cameron judge, no Charleston Hughes. How are you going to, how are they going to replace those players? And Cameron judge was barely noticeable with Toronto. So is Charleston Hughes. And most of the free agency moves that Jeremy O'Day made worked out very well. And they, it's not like they didn't have a free agency list like this, coming into the 2021 season, but it certainly wasn't just a handful of them. There was a lot that had to be done there. And more often than not, far more often than not, Jeremy O'Day was able to, to sign the players he had to sign it. And it was also rec- recognized uh, which players could be discarded and replaced. The Blue Bombers, as Heath was alluding to, have a, a laundry list of players that they need to re-sign a lot on defense, which was their mainstay throughout the season. You look at the Tiger Cats. What about Brandon Banks? Do they want to bring him back? Yeah, you know, Brandon Banks is 34 years old or just about to turn 34. You know, he, he by his own acknowledgement in an interview he did with Steve Simmons, said he's not the same player. 
I'll still wonder if Hamilton was really determined in the Grey Cup to their first and goal from the five yard line. How do you not get the ball in Brandon Banks' hands? Is not is that not the guy you want to get the ball to in that situation? He scored the touchdown, and then they forgot that Brandon Banks was in the team again. I think situationally, he can still do some things to to help a football team. Not too far removed from being named the most outstanding player in the league. Again, I mean, you can look at any team right now and just say that's they've got to re-sign him. They've got to re-sign him. Then maybe there's exceptions uh, as far as the Ottawa Redblacks are concerned. The players they wanted to re-sign, they're mo- the most marketable players in Ottawa. They were able to get them re-signed, sort of a parting gift from Marshall Desjardins. They just don't have a lot of real marketable commodities, but they've pretty much retained the few players who would qualify as linchpins in Ottawa. Everywhere else, it's just, oh my goodness, where do you start? You spoke earlier of the possibility of some Tiger Cats winding up in Ottawa because Sean Burke is now there. What about Chris Jones pulling some ex-Argonauts who are available to go with him to Edmonton? Uh, Cam Judge, for instance, uh, uh, Cordell Law. You've got a, a few people that are pretty stalwart players. I mean, you look at Will- Willie Jefferson, for example. I presume he's one of the... A lot- on the Bombers' lengthy list of free agents. You just presume everybody's, everybody is. But any of those players, you have the Chris Jones connection. Look at A.C. Leonard. It was it was A.C. Leonard who Chris Jones pretty much saw something as, in as a defensive lineman. He was a tight end or a receiver once upon a time. Chris Jones recognizes and sees things in athletes that maybe they don't see in themselves. And I'm not sure that A.C. Leonard at one point in his CFL career thought he would be a uh, defensive end. I don't think... Deron Carter once upon a time thought he would be would have two pick sixes in his career. <laughs> you know, Chris Jones, look, look at Toby Antigua. Outside of playing for Chris Jones in Saskatchewan, Toby Antigua has not been an impactful player. But in Saskatchewan, in that Chris Jones system, he flourished. You know, Nick Marshall was a quarterback in college and Chris Jones saw in him the type of player who could become the tremendous defensive back that he has become. He re- He's really ingenious at just seeing what what an athlete can do, maybe thinking outside the box and applying those attributes to the needs of uh, of a CFL team and, and to kind of template that he's trying to build on defense. And so don't rule anything out now that Chris Jones is here. I mean, as much as he may help himself to a few players in Saskatchewan who have, who have those ties, you got to look at Winnipeg, you can look around the league. And I mean, Chris Jones is, he's been around so much and coached so many players in this league. And there aren't many players who didn't, didn't like playing for Chris Jones. Gary Durant's one of them. <laughs> there are exceptions. What, what kind of statement do you think it makes for those free agents in Winnipeg that Michael O'Shea declined to even speak to Edmonton about their vacant position? Does that build some camaraderie there and, and make some of those players more likely to stay in Winnipeg? Well, they've really fostered that family uh, environment in Winnipeg. And it's an overused term with football teams or with sports franchises. They talk about family and then free agency gets and, and it's every man for himself. And it's, it should be. I think in Winnipeg, it's one of those rare examples where it's just more than lip service. I mean, it's just been proven that they've been able to build that culture and maintain that culture. How they were able to retain most of a team, most of the valuable pieces of a team that in 2019 won a Grey Cup and then win a Grey Cup again with that nucleus. Uh, even though teams were now spending generally closer to the salary, salary cap floor than they were to the ceiling, that tells you something about what not only Michael Mike O'Shea, but Kyle Walters have been able to instill in Winnipeg. Uh, and I think it would have been a little disingenuous for, for Mike O'Shea to then bolt and, and, and take over another team as much as 
you could defend it saying, well, he's, he'll have an expanded portfolio. He'll be a GM, et cetera, and all that. He, uh, a lot of what he's preached was underlined by his decision to stay in Winnipeg. And I think uh, players love playing for that guy. And when they see that uh, not only does he inspire loyalty on the, on the part of the players, but he, he certainly lives up to it himself. I'm just more impressed with the way Mike O'Shea handles himself all the time. Uh, he just seems to be one of these coaches, not unlike Chris Jones, who players really like playing for. And, uh, you know, Don Matthews was that way too, in a different way, but players love playing for Don Matthews. You knew where you stood. Uh, Don Matthews had his guys, just like Chris Jones has his guys, but they're great for a reason. And, you know, Mike O'Shea, I, what an amazing job he has done. And Kyle Walters too. And, and, and you're looking at Canadian uh, heads of you know, the football operations department there too. Calgary Stampeders, it looks like their entire receiving core and running back core are out. Mark Ethan Ambles, Reggie Bagleton, Kadeem Carey, Kamar Jordan, up and down the line. And the, maybe the one that could be the most interesting is Jake Mayer. The Stampeders have got to decide the health of Bo Levi Mitchell. And if they're satisfied that he's going to be Bo of 2017, not Bo of 2021, then does Jake Mayer go free agent? And what? Uh, what is the cost of signing, re-signing Jake Mayer versus re-signing Bo Levi Mitchell? I would tend to think that the safe bet is still Bo Levi Mitchell. You're not talking a 35, 36-year-old quarterback. It seems like he's been around for a while, but he's still in his early 30s. And uh, I think there's a reasonable chance that he will resume being Bo Levi Mitchell given enough recuperative time. And they'll, they will find pieces to go around. In, they always do. A play here and a play there, and Calgary wins the West semifinal. If they could convert one of two second and two situations uh, in, in the West semifinal, they'd probably get past the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. It's not like that Calgary team was a lost cause. They came very close to beating a Saskatchewan team. They came very close to beating a Winnipeg team. They ended up winning the championship. So that Winnipeg, Calgary, even with a Foley by Mitchell, often looked like a facsimile of himself, uh, was still a pretty credible team. Uh, is there sort of a linchpin process that could be happening. Mitchell says, I'm good to go. Do the receivers say, well, I want to run with him? Could be. Um, with, with contracts being what they are, I think everybody is, well, maybe the Winnipeg situation is a bit of an exception, but I still think players are going to look out for their own best interests. Most places you go in the CFL as a receiver, a receiver I think you're going to end up playing with a pretty good quarterback. There isn't the greatness of quarterback that maybe there was once upon a time but it, if you go to be if you sign with bc i think have a pretty good time catching passes from from michael riley uh if you go to winnipeg there's zach Kalaros. if you go to pretty much anywhere uh even even ottawa i think you're going to have a good quarterback in that on that team so it's not like once upon a time if you sign with the rough riders in the mid 1990s you're catching passes from warren jones or keith rylance or kevin mason or jimmy camp or the litany of quarterbacks of that caliber uh those those type of situations are i think are few and far between there's there's pretty solid quarterbacking if not great quarterbacking across the league so i don't think a receiver really has to worry about if he's going to um, suddenly end up in a situation not unlike that with the Denver Broncos, where you've got Cortland Sutton, Tim Patrick, and Jerry Judy, and nobody can get you the ball. Do you, do you see the end of the line for Michael Riley or Trevor Harris this season, or do you think they both have one more in them? I really wonder in, in the case of Riley. You know, he's well into his 30s now, and they've got Nathan Work there looking pretty impressive. 
Not only that, he can be a ratio breaker. Not only that, he would have to pay him $700,000 a year. I, I really wonder what's up with Michael Riley because they, I think he would have to take a real pay cut in order to continue there. And you really wonder, again, I alluded to it earlier with in Calgary, if it's a choice between paying Bo Levi Mitchell what he's been accustomed to making. Or- what about in Toronto, McLeod Bethel-Thompson? It seems like he's on again, off again, on again, off again with that roster. Yeah. Is there a point at which the Argonauts finally cut bait or what are they going to do? I don't know. It just seems to me like they they really don't know what they want to do with their quarterback and they go after Nick Arbuckle as hard as they could to get him, signed him big, got rid of him halfway through the year. At some point, you've got to decide on something. Yeah, the acquisition of, of Nick Arbuckle, to me, several months ago, seemed to be the uh, vote of non-confidence in McLeod Bethel-Thompson. And I don't know, it just nothing I really saw in the in the, in the the playoffs this year led me to think that if you're an Argo executive, an Argo fan, that you can have a lot of confidence that McLeod Bethel-Thompson is going to be the guy to uh, lead you out of the wilderness there. They had a pretty good year. He had a pretty good year, but come playoff time, it just wasn't there. What does that mean going forward? And and uh, certainly it sure wasn't a good look at the end of the season when he was uh, taking out his frustrations, uh, at least showing his frustrations with a, with the TSN camera very close. Sometimes these guys got to remember who's paying a lot of their, their, <laughs> their salaries. And uh, without that TSN contract, I'm not sure what type of shape the CFL would be in. The Argos, we talked about it in this podcast, how heavy they went into free agency prior to last season. A lot of those guys were one-year deals. They could be, again, looking quite a bit different. And with Rich Stubler probably in charge, I imagine that defense will look a little different too. Yeah, and there's no real mystery to what that defense will look like. It'll be the end but don't break defense that Rich Stubler has had for the, for the longest time. That's not a very sexy look in a, in a market where you've really, I think, got to do something to turn some heads. Something's got to happen in that market to really create some pizzazz and to create some buzz. And Argos had a pretty good year. Their biggest name is still Mike Pinball Clemens. They don't have a player who's really that identifiable, and uh, that can't help them. It's just a pretty, it's a pretty nondescript crew across the board for the Toronto Argonauts. And somehow, I think they've got to, they got to get a situation entrenched there where at least some of the players' names are recognizable. They just weren't that exciting a team as good of a year as they had. They had the same record as the Saskatchewan Roughriders, but. There was nothing really that aesthetically pleasing about the Toronto Argonauts this year. When they tried to create a buzz by going to a Raptors game, it kind of blew up in their face. <laughs> Did that ever? <laughs> One of those only in the CFL type of scenarios. My goodness. Well, I wouldn't say only in the CFL. Look at what happened in the NFL the last weekend. How many games were rerouted and how many players are in trouble now with COVID problems? Oh, sure. But when the, when the, when the, when the team pretty much compels the player to go to the Raptors game so you can get some airtime and then that ends up backfiring because A doesn't know what B is doing. You know, that's not a, just an example of uh, COVID, uh, you know, the prevalence of the COVID situation. That's just uh, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. And that was just a classic example of bungling that makes the CFL an all too easy target at times. Well, I, I don't think the CFL needs to take the shot over a decision one team took. No, but I mean it's, it reflects on the whole on the whole league, and some people will jump to conclusions and say, "Well, you know, just again, like I did, that's only in the CFL moment." It's just for sake of argument, ballpark. We've got about what two hundred free agents. Which team is that? Uh, of them, how many are going to be left by February eighth when free agency starts? Oh, 
I mean, of those 200, how many are worth resigning anyway? I think you almost have to put them into tiers. If you look at the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, I mean, Jeremy O'Day has shown that I think the vast majority of players that he wants to get back will be back. Maybe the Chris Jones hiring in Edmonton changes that a bit because now there are players who just are magnetically attracted to wherever Chris Jones goes because he has that uh, presence about him and that, that type of reputation. But I still think, by and large, Jeremy O'Day will get the players he wants to get. Duke Williams will be back, and A.C. Leonard will be back, and Nick Marshall will be back. You know, if, if a player is, say, in a situation such as out of Ed Ganey turning 33 next season, that might be the deciding factor. They, the Rough Riders saw, decided to turn the page with, with Charleston Hughes on the basis of age. Once a player gets into the 30s, maybe that, their 30s, maybe that influences the, the equation a bit. But I would say if, if you look at the Rough Riders' top 10 free agents, I think Jeremy O'Day will, will sign at least eight of them. He's, he's shown that he's adept at that, and there's no reason to think that he won't continue to be adept at that because it's happened over a, a long enough stretch of time now that it's, it's not abnormal for him to do that. That's just the way they conduct business. And Winnipeg, Calgary, Montreal prioritize the top 10 let's get eight or nine of those guys and then we'll see what happens with the rest i would tend to think so you know you'll see some movement and some flux but and again it's part of it depends on where the cap goes too again our team's going to spend to the limit of the cap or are they continue to spend to the floor we won't even know we'll never find out to, to what extent teams did spend we'll just find out if they violated and went over the cap no i don't think anybody will do that this year because they were trying to spend closer to the floor than the ceiling we never really hear what, how much money is spent. You know, if teams are being miserly and trying to spend a lot less than the maximum, then and if there's some, if there's a team or two that decides to be the exception and, and spends to spends closer to the limit, that could free up some dollars and, and perhaps be alluring to some players. All things being equal, I would think most of the top guys will stay where they are, and there'll be a, there'll be a handful of marquee players on the open market. Thanks again, Rob, for coming on to the show and uh, providing some awesome insight as usual. Always a great opportunity for us when you are here to learn a lot about the Canadian Football League and from a guy who knows it probably as well as anyone. Well, that's just a function of being old. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen a few things over 114 years, but uh, and, I, and I've, it's something I've just always enjoyed following even long before I did you know, wrote about it for a living or fought it for a living. It's something I did as a somebody who was just a wide, wide-eyed kid who just loved it. No one, no different from, from you, Don. So you know, we're we're kindred spirits in in a way. It's just that you look much younger and, and have no gray hair, and it really is it really is saddening. Actually, I don't handle it very well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, though. Great to catch up with you again, Rob. Look forward to having you on again. Yeah, anytime. It's it's great to chat with uh, with you and Don, and I hope. Uh, Hope our paths will cross at least electronically uh, in the near future. And I hope to have a chance to do this again in 2022. Sounds great. Well, let's make it a plan in 2022. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble Podcast. Audio. Worth watching.